Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10x points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. One of the cooler things that's happened in the last few decades is that scientists have decided that emotions are worth studying. And they found new ways to study them. Not just in people, also in animals. The guy who's taken the lead with the animals is a Dutch primatologist named Franz de Waal. You know, emotions are a sort of taboo topic. They used to be, at least. And so most of the time we don't explicitly discuss them. We, we, um, we discuss the behavior that they produce, but not the emotions themselves. That's de Waal himself. He's Dutch, but works in Atlanta at Emory University. When he started out, no one thought you could study the emotions of animals. A lot of people just assume that animals didn't have emotions, and scientists shouldn't care if they did. We're not supposed to talk about mental states or feelings or planning or thoughts or whatever. And so um, there was a taboo for 100 years on on talking about that. And uh, it's only in the last 20 years or so that that taboo is being lifted and that the more and more scientists are open about uh, internal states. Meaning emotions. They so clearly drive behavior in both animals and people. Which brings me to Professor DeWall's most famous experiment. I worked with capuchin monkeys for a long time. We noticed in our lab that the monkeys were always very keenly watching what somebody else would get. Not just what they themselves get for a task, but also what somebody else is getting. So a final experiment that I want to mention to you is our fairness study. This is DeWall's TED Talk about that experiment. Two monkeys in cages, side by side. The cages are plexiglass, so the monkeys can see each other and the scientist. They're given treats for performing a task. The task is to take a rock from a researcher and hand it back to her. It doesn't sound so hard, but then you're not a monkey. The treat is a slice of cucumber. And if you give both of them cucumber, 
for the task, the two monkeys side by side, they're perfectly willing to do this 25 times in a row. So cucumber, even though it's really only water in my opinion, but cucumber <laughs> is perfectly fine for them. Perfectly fine. But then, a few rounds in, one of the monkeys hands back the rock, and the researcher gives that monkey a grape, not a cucumber. Monkeys really like grapes. And see, so the other one sees that. The other monkey stares. She waits her turn. She gets the rock and hands it back. Gets again cucumber. She looks back and forth between the cucumber and the other monkey. She just chucked the cucumber back at the researcher. Then she goes apeshit. The researcher keeps giving grapes to one monkey and cucumbers to the other. She tests the rock now against the wall. She needs to give it to us. And she gets cucumber again. The monkey that gets cucumber explodes in anger, climbing the walls of the cage, throwing whatever she can get her paws on at the researcher. So this is basically the Wall Street protest that you see here. At some deep level, monkeys expect life to be fair. And so do we. The human sense of fairness is not just some sort of mental product, some sort of uh, a, a Kantian philosopher would say is that it's a principle that we have uh, arrived at th- by reasoning and logic or something like that. No, no, there's, a, there's a, a real emotion behind it, and that's why the feelings are so strong behind all these moral principles that we have. This experiment isn't just about unfairness. To have any effect at all, the unfairness has to be out in the open. The monkey getting the cucumber needs to see the monkey getting the grape. So it's also about the relationship between transparency and unfairness. I sometimes wonder what would happen if people ever got to see all the unfairness in life. If, say, some magical new technology came along that generally increased the transparency in the world. Oh, wait, it just did. My name is Michael Lewis, and this is Against the Rules, a show about the decline of the human referee in American life and what that's doing to our idea of fairness. I was talking the other day with a woman named Yusa Sever. She'd grown up in Slovenia when it was part of Yugoslavia, And she was there in the 1990s when Yugoslavia fell apart. Hundreds of thousands were killed. Millions more persecuted. Musa escaped, but with the new conviction that nothing was more important than the rule of law. Justice. She wanted everyone everywhere to have it. In 2003, she moved to Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan was not an obvious upgrade on Slovenia, even at its most terrifying. Well, uh, they had a pretty nice uh, constitution, but that was mainly on the paper. Security services were uh, controlling everything. A group called Freedom House had sent Musa to document what was happening in Uzbekistan's prisons. The prisons had become the Uzbek government's torture chambers. They had cattle prods and rooms where they hung you from your wrists and ankles. Other rooms where they beat you with rubber hoses and smothered you with plastic bags. All done in total secrecy. 
just like the trials that had sent people to prison in the first place. What about the judges in the courtroom? Are the judges, what kind of independence did they have? Uh, no, 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 no. That, that was uh, the old legacy of the Soviet system uh, made prosecutors totally in charge of everything. The government prosecutors were in charge. The judges had zero power. They just took orders from the prosecutors. The orders were simple. Any person who gets arrested is guilty. As soon as you did something that uh, got the police to arrest you, that was it. You couldn't get out. Can you just describe, like you're describing to a child, what it felt like to live in that system? Hmm. Well, one person didn't matter. You didn't matter at all. So the, the only way how people try to preserve their safety was they didn't stick out in any way. People had to stay hidden. Not because the Uzbeks didn't have any laws. They had their nice little constitution. What they lacked was an idea at the center of any system of justice. The independent judge, the ref in robes, the human being charged with ensuring fairness in the court of law. When you live in a country that doesn't have people like that, you wake up every day to the same emotion. Fear, there was always fear, yeah. Fear that uh, this, if you don't do what the state wants you to do, they could eliminate you. The Uzbeks didn't invent the police state. They were just more enthusiastic about it than most. But in 2016, something changed. The president died. That was his funeral. He was the only president that Uzbekistan had ever had. And the new president decided amazingly, and without any great revolution, to open things up. To create basically from scratch a legal system that included some concept of fairness. In practice, that meant handing actual power to the people who'd never had any. The judges. The refs. Which sounds like it should be easy for the judges, right? You don't really think of them having to learn how to be independent. It's like breathing. You do it so long as you're allowed to. It turns out, that's wrong. The younger ones uh, are those usually that make a decision on acquittals and try to do things right. The older ones are still, they, they find it hard. So if you're a defendant and you walk into a courtroom and you see a young judge, you're happier than if you see an old judge. Yeah, definitely. Because only the new judges will acquit you. The old guys will still assume you're supposed to be sent directly to jail. It's as if they don't want their independence. Or as if the Uzbek system doesn't know how to grant it to them. The Uzbeks have done all kinds of things to get the changes to work. They've invited American judges to visit, to teach them about judicial independence. They've opened their courtrooms so people can watch the trials. Musa had this idea of staging mock trials so that the old guys could see what fairness looked like. So we had two trials. On both trials, the defense won the case. And huh. that was such a shock the team of prosecutors 
and they sent us the best. Uh, didn't even want to shake the hands with the team of defense. <laughs> they were so pissed off. And they would be asking what happens to American prosecutor when he loses a case. Does he lose a job? Is he punished? They were an undefeated team up to that point. Yes. They'd never lost. They never lost because they were not supposed to lose. <laughs> They're not supposed to lose, right. Yeah. Changing those attitudes must not be easy. <clears throat> it's not easy and, you know, that's why I'm there 15 years. <laughs> All of which is to say that a system of justice isn't just a bunch of laws. A system of justice lives and dies on the emotion it evokes, especially feelings about the judges and the judges' feelings about their role. So here's what happens. We're in front of a very hostile judge. The judge was appointed by Barack Obama, federal judge. These feelings can change. They're changing right here, right now. Because he's given us ruling after ruling after ruling, negative, negative, negative. The Uzbeks have picked a funny moment to emulate the American system of justice. They want transparency. They want the people to see the judges at work. At the same time, Americans are being encouraged to watch their judges more closely than ever. And what they see is causing some problems. As listeners of this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert teams of nerds have the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. Malcolm Grabwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the Customer Experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. 
And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. So I walked in, and I mean, I think, I think I look younger than I am anyway, and and so I think you do. You know, I think Many a lot. Years. You know, I thought a lot of people just assumed I was, you know, in my early twenties or something. You know, this is Jeremy Fogel. He was once a judge, but not just any judge, a judge who had a gift for watching himself on the job. The presiding judge gave me a file and said, "Here's your here's your first case. The jury's coming in half an hour or something like that." This podcast was bound to lead to judges. They're too important to ignore. But they usually don't have much to say for themselves. By law, they're forbidden from discussing their cases. By custom, they don't typically invite you to get to know them. That's why I've come to Jeremy Fogel. He's decided that judges have no choice but to break their silence because they're being watched in new ways. And he's sort of taking the lead. Fogel was always a little odd for a judge. He went to college during the Vietnam War. He'd studied religion and wanted to become a professor. But the war switched on something inside of him, made him want to do something practical out in the world. I just felt like an academic life was going to be too, too cloistered. So law school was kind of something I did almost as an afterthought. He became a public defender, taking the cases of people who couldn't afford a lawyer. He saw the unfairness of the system, the crazy inequality, the likelihood that it would treat a poor person less fairly than a rich person. Jeremy was doing what he could to rectify that, but he sensed that he had this thing about him that made him less than ideal for the job. You can't be the one-sided advocate where you, you, you just kind of go in and say, well, you know, my, my client's entirely right and these people are entirely wrong. I, I never felt comfortable doing that. He didn't like taking sides which is a problem if you're a lawyer. You know, there's, there's lawyers who actually believe their client's uh, case is totally right. Then there's people who know that it isn't, but they, they can play the role. And, and I wasn't ever really that comfortable playing the role. At the same time, I mean, I you know, was aware of what my ethical obligations were. And so I started to think about, well, gee, what if I were a neutral? A neutral. We know now how hard they are to find. Others who knew Jeremy Fogel had the same thought, in 1986, Fogel was appointed to be a California state judge. 
Is it, and is yeah. it nerve-wracking? I, well, I was really nervous. I was, I, you know, I didn't know what to expect. And, you know uh, when to hit the no, gavel? No, I, I, I don't think I ever hit the gavel in my life. But, but, but I, just, I, was never in a, I was never in a mood where I felt like I needed to do that. He wound up running a family court without ever once using his gavel. He presided over divorces and custody battles. It was emotional, angry, ugly. If a judge had some perverse desire to be murdered by the people in his courtroom, he'd ask for family court duty. Most judges dislike family court because it's the hot zone. Jeremy Fogel didn't just like it, he loved it. You know, you have people who are, quote, normal most of the time, who, who when they're in the middle of the divorce, are not. No, they're temporarily insane. They're temporarily insane, right? So the ability to kind of step in and, and bring a little bit of order to the situation actually was something I felt very positive about. And How would you do that? I mean, I, I think a lot of it was just, just listening and trying to figure out what's really going on. And, you know, they're fighting about who gets the dog, you know, or they're fighting about who gets the piano or, you know, and, and I just said, it's not about the piano. <laughs> you know, this is, this is a power struggle, you know. So I would say to the parties, I would bring them in for mediations. They would talk to me about this, you know. And so, you know, you would kind of dig down and you could sort of see what the underlying problem was. And then you could say, well, how are we going to, how are we going to move forward here? You know, how are we going to get you folks divorced? Because that's really what needs to happen, right? You're getting a feel for him. A born neutral. Some people just are. Jeremy Fogel thinks he caught the trait from growing up with a volatile father from wanting life at home to just calm down. Anyway, judging suits him. In 1997, Bill Clinton appoints him to the United States Court for the District of Northern California. It's the big time. He goes from being one of tens of thousands of state judges to one of only 2,000 federal judges. He's got life tenure in this job that he totally loves. But now he's noticing things, and they're pulling him outside of himself, causing him to watch himself, meta-judging. And it's actually really hard to be humble when you're a judge because the, the, everybody's kowtowing to you. You're, you're, you're wearing the robe and you're on the bench and everybody's you know, calling you your honor. And they're, you know, they're, there's, there's a lot of false deference, I think. A judge can make huge mistakes and still fool himself into thinking that he was doing great. Jeremy Fogel tried to fight this tendency, by not allowing himself to forget his most terrible mistakes. I mean, the one that always comes to mind was, a, was when I was doing the mental health calendar, and this young man was trying to get off of uh, conservatorship, and the doctors were saying, no, he's you know, manic-depressive and he can be dangerous to himself. And, and he persuaded me that he was okay. And he killed himself the next day. Judging forces you to make these horrible life-and-death decisions, when you really don't know the right answer. Jeremy Fogel knows that he's going to be wrong sometimes. And so he thinks it's important for the people on the receiving end of his judgments to sense his humility, his humanity. He thinks judges need to be not just book smart, but people smart, so that people who leave their courtroom feel okay with what's just happened. We need a curriculum. You know, we, we need to be intentional about what we're teaching judges. What kind of judges are we trying to grow, you know? The longer Jeremy Fogel's a judge, the more worried he becomes about the relationship between Americans and their judges. He's right to be worried. American judges are being threatened and challenged and exposed as never before. 
Do you have anything you'd like to say? Senator, I would like to start by saying unequivocally, uncategorically, that I deny each and every single allegation against me today that suggested in any way that I had conversations of a sexual nature or about pornographic material with Anita Hill. Supreme Court confirmation battles. They're now just a ritual in American culture. But they have echoes in the daily lives of ordinary judges. Political attacks on judges are on the rise. Physical attacks on judges are on the rise. And there's this new demand that judges reveal more and more of themselves and their lives to us. When I was started writing, the norm was still for the justices not to grant many, if any, on-the-record interviews. And uh, in fact, the Supreme Court at that time didn't even publish transcripts of the arguments on the same day, and they would just refer to the court rather than an individual justice. That's how impersonal the whole thing was supposed to be in the early 90s. Jeff Rosen runs the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. But he used to make his living writing these wonderful profiles of Supreme Court justices. And he's watched even Supreme Court judges bow to the social pressure to let everyone get to know them. Now the transcripts are published on the same day. The justices are identified by name, and the justices are writing best-selling books. And they're appearing not only on C-SPAN, but, you know, on the networks. And they're opening themselves up to being just as accessible as all the other celebrified figures in our celebrified culture. The Honorable, the Chief Justice and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. Something different is going on here than what goes on in the Capitol building uh, or in the White House, and you need to appreciate how important it is to our system of government. Jeff Rosen doesn't approve of any of this. He really doesn't approve. He thinks that we'd all be better off if judges retained their old mystique, if they weren't so human. But you know what? It's too late. And Jeremy Fogle thinks this might be okay. One of the things that will help strengthen judicial independence is if the public understands more about judges. People don't understand what we do. And, you know, what you see is is caricatures. And I think the more you can kind of really paint the picture and kind of get out, this is a job, you know, it's like being a doctor. It's like being a teacher. It's like being a fighter pilot. I mean, there's a skill set that goes with it and there's a set of values that go with it. And And then it's inappropriate for... yeah for people to be like making death threats. Yeah. So the part of the problem with the judge in American life is yeah. that he's so different from so much else of American life. Yeah. So yeah. Americans go through life doing what they feel like doing. Right. And it's hard to imagine themselves into a headspace where they're doing things for some reason other than they want to do them. That's right. Americans really don't understand refs. Jeremy Fogle felt that they needed to. And so in 2011, when he was 61 years old, He did something that would have surprised his younger self. He left the bench for this thing in Washington called the Federal Judicial Center, created by Congress back in the 1960s to improve the nation's entire judiciary. Jeremy Fogel agrees to run it. He thinks he can use the place to train judges in better ways so they can withstand the new transparency and be better than the caricature as we see in confirmation battles. Did you consume alcohol during your high school years? Yes, we drank beer. Uh, My friends and I, the boys and girls, I liked beer, still like beer. And I think, you know, judges all over the country are really 
struggling with this. I mean, like how, how do we explain to people that no, I mean, that's just not who we are. It's not what we do. And it's really important that you know that. Where, does it, where do you hear that? that? I, I hear it. I just hear it from other judges. Uh, and I hear it from judges at the state level and, and the federal level. And you're hearing this in a way you wouldn't have heard it when you started your career. That's right. So this is changing. It is changing. It is changing. It is something that's in the air. Actually, it must be more than one thing because it's new to your nose. An entirely new smell. Has anyone told you about the What Judges Eat for Breakfast study? Tell me about it. That's Emily Bazelon. She's written so much interesting journalism about the American legal system that the Yale Law School has made her a research scholar. Okay. So this is, at this point, kind of a famous study in law nerd world. Um, Somebody looked at the sentencing decisions that judges made right before lunch and right after lunch. And they found that after lunch, judges are nicer. And before lunch, when presumably they're getting a little peckish, they're meaner. They give out longer sentences before lunch than after lunch. That's terrifying. Yeah, it really is because it feels so random. Not just random, disturbing. I'm not sure anyone ever really believed that human beings could be perfectly rational. But people used to sort of believe it or at least pretend to believe it. We created excuses for why we didn't need to pay too much attention to what was going on inside of judges' minds. I mean, they'd been hand-picked to make hard decisions. How could they be anything but good at it? We had a group of judges, um, trial court judges in Texas, um, really municipal judges, the kind of folks who see, you know, traffic tickets and uh, fines for restaurants and and the like. Jeffrey Reklinski teaches at Cornell Law School. He's now almost famous for these elaborate experiments involving judges, showing that when it comes to making decisions— Judges suck in exactly the same way as other human beings. In one study, he wanted to see if you could screw up judges' minds by putting some random number into their brains. So he gave them a scenario involving a nightclub that violated noise ordinances. The judges had to figure out a proper fine. And for half of them, we, we called, told them that the club was named Club 58 after its street address. For the other half, we told them it was Club 11,866 after its street address. And the fine was three times as high for Club 11,866. Two of the judges, in fact, fined the club $11,866. They thought, that well, that's a clever number. Let's put that in and fine them. You heard it here first. Never, ever call your establishment Club 11,866 or mention any other random big number to a judge in the process of fining you. Or, for that matter think that the judge is any more capable than other human beings at checking himself before he screws up. 86% of automobile drivers say they're, they're less likely than the median driver to get into a car accident. People always think they're above average, especially when it comes to something they care about. What most trial judges care about is not having their rulings overturned. So we asked them, how likely are you relative to the median judge in this room to be overturned on appeal? And... Indeed, 87% of them said they were less likely than the median judge to be overturned on appeal. Later on, we asked a group of judges, um, how effective are you at avoiding race or gender bias in your decisions? And 99% of them are better than the median judge at that. There's a long list of stuff like this. It's the same stupid stuff that all people do. The evidence has been piling up that judges are no more than human. 
at a time when being human is maybe less flattering than it's ever been. It's funny how neatly you can map what's happening to sports referees onto judges. They've always had their biases. We're just getting better at seeing them. We now know that sports refs who are made aware of their biases, they make better calls. Same should be true of judges, right? I mean, once you know that you send people to jail longer right before lunch than you do right after lunch, you can start to watch your blood sugar. But, as with sports refs, a lot of people clearly believe that judges are getting worse. It's as if we've demanded to know the truth without realizing we can't handle the truth. Wait, it's such a paradox that if we become more honest about the ways in which someone's values in politics inform their judicial decisions, that we're somehow doing them a disservice. I'm talking to Emily Bazelon again. You know, it's funny. It's, it's like the system does much better if nobody's paying too much attention to it. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, there's something useful about the fiction that there is a totally separate group of people called judges. They wear black robes. They're Olympian. They're doing their own thing and they're handing down decisions from on high. It's not true, right? I mean, I really think it's like a kind of um, an idealized notion of the law that is essentially false because people's prior beliefs and their values do shape the decisions they make when they have a real choice, right? And yet I'm torn because when we had the fiction that judges were doing some totally different thing, it was easier, I think, for them to try to measure impartiality in that way, to try to adhere to that standard. But it's... It's hard to imagine how the fiction would be restored. Oh, yes, it's gone. As listeners of this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert teams of nerds have the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the Customer Experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. 
And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. How long have baby judges been taught about the importance of their emotions? Since 2013. So this is a new thing. It's a new thing, yeah. Her name is Terry Maroney. She teaches law at Vanderbilt. Jeremy Fogel brought her in to teach judges in the new program he created at the Federal Judicial Center. Baby judge school, they call it. New judges now learn all about the sorts of things they never used to have to think about, like the mental errors to which all human beings are prone, and their emotions. The law has maintained this very odd fiction that emotion is irrelevant to law and that law is all about rationality, when pretty much every other discipline in the world understands that emotion is central to all aspects of human life. It's funny because I think historically, you've, if you'd asked people, they would have said, uh, an emotional judge can't be as fair as an unemotional judge. And what right. you're saying is the emotions are always there, and it's the judge right. who doesn't recognize them who, can't, who won't be fair. That's correct. Yeah. The emotional lives of judges have been discovered at roughly the same time as the emotional lives of monkeys. It turns out they have a lot in common, which is why Jeremy Fogel put emotional training at the center of baby judge school. I wonder if you went back in history and tried to introduce this curriculum at an earlier point in, in the history of the ju judiciary, if people would have responded the same way. That's a really interesting thought experiment because when I was uh, a California state judge, I was involved in working with the, the California version of the FJC and actually designed a class that looked at this. And the general response from judges at that time was, you know, I just want to do my job and, you know, I don't, they didn't, they didn't say anything like, well, I didn't, I don't have any feelings, but they just said, I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't really want to go there. I don't need to go there. And it, it was somehow irrelevant yeah, to the job. Exactly. 
the fiction is collapsing or has collapsed about who, what a judge is and mm-hmm. what's inside a judge and how a judge functions. And it's going to have to be replaced by something else. Right. Uh, and you're trying, to, you're trying to work towards what it gets replaced by. Exactly. I mean, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. The general idea of baby judge school is to turn judges into people who can judge themselves as well as others because the job's putting these new pressures on judges. And if judges don't learn to cope, the pressures will crack them and make the entire situation even worse. And when you start to behave like everybody else, you're going to get treated like that's everybody else. That's exactly what the problem was. And, and I think that's what really upset me. And it upset a lot of judges, I know, and, and irrespective of ideology. You know, but then, so then what's the, you know, what's the remedy? Or is there a remedy? Or, you know, it's, it's, it just was, we didn't, nobody likes seeing that. This whole two-week effort has been a calculated and orchestrated political hit. Almost by himself, Justice Kavanaugh killed any doubts that emotions inside judges might be a problem. Fueled with apparent pent-up anger about President Trump and the 2016 election, fear that has been unfairly stoked about my judicial record, revenge on behalf of the Clintons, and millions of dollars in money from outside left-wing opposition groups. The question I guess I have is, how much can be done about it, even with the best coaching? I come in, I'm a baby judge, you know, I don't really care about other people's feelings, right. and I don't look you in the eye, and, but I'm right. very reasonable, and I got A's, and I got A's in all my classes in law school, and 800 on my LSATs, right. and uh, I can write a really cool brief. However, I don't feel your pain. What do you do to school yeah. me? Well, you know, there's a very long answer to that, and that's a lifetime of work. Terry Maroney again. Give me, give me, give me an example. Just one example of a t- of a tool. I want a tool. Yes. So one tool is situation modification. You can modify some aspects of the situation to enable you to be in greater control and give you time and space to self reflect and to act. So sometimes it's as simple as taking a break. Let me stop you for a sec. All of these feelings and the tools that you might give them to deal with these feelings. This will make, I can see why this would help make the judge feel better about, about himself and about his job and able to sleep at night. Yeah, but which it's not matters. Actually, it's not going to actually affect the sentencing, is it? Well, it could actually, because um, again, think about a judge who says, I realized that I didn't want to sentence in anger. Um, anger makes you very punitive. That's part of what it's for. That's the tendency that it evokes in humans is to attach responsibility and to take punitive action in response to it. In a funny way, American judges are in the same situation as the judges in Uzbekistan. They're being forced to adapt to a new environment. Mr. Trump tweeted last week about the Seattle judge for ruling against his executive order on immigration. Only the American environment is increasingly driven by emotion saying the, so, the opinion of this so-called judge, which essentially takes law enforcement away from our country, is ridiculous and will be overturned. That judge, James Robart, immediately became a target on social media, with one person even calling him a dead man walking. This is Jeremy Fogel's worst nightmare. So Judge Robart, who was the judge in Seattle who did the uh, travel ban case, um, got over a million uh, emails uh, he got death threats, and the death threats the Marshal Service determined were credible enough that they had to give him 24-hour protection. And and what facilitated all of that was was social media. 
are there other judges like Robart oh, who sure. had this kind of experience? No, sure. The, 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 the Ninth Circuit judges who, who reviewed Robart's decision that, that got the same. As a judge, Jeremy Fogel had upset people with his rulings. Back in 2006, he had blocked the execution of a man who had raped and strangled a 17-year-old girl. After Fogel's ruling, people went crazy. But crazy in 2006 is different from crazy now. The, 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 the point is that everything is amplified and sped up, and you, there's just no way you can respond to that. Judges are, are precluded by the code of conduct from commenting on pending cases. These forces of it that are potentially yeah. antagonistic to judicial authority mm-hmm. have gained enormous strength, and there's not a corresponding gain in the, in the forces, uh, in the strength of the forces that might defend judicial That's right. authority. That's right. I think there are steps along the way and that one of the most important qualities judges in America have right now is that people believe in their independence. Emily Bazelon with one final thought. If that starts to break down in a really serious way, then even if they technically remain independent, um, wouldn't they start to feel tempted more and more to do whatever is politically expedient? But if they stop behaving in any plausible way as if they're independent, then aren't we on our way to Uzbekistan? America obviously isn't Uzbekistan. The Uzbek judges lived in a black box. The American judge lives in a plexiglass cage. The Uzbeks had no ability to criticize their system of justice, or even to see how it really worked. We watch our judges as they've never been watched before. It's not that all eyes are upon judges when they do their jobs. It's that all eyes are upon them when they do their jobs in unpopular ways, when some subset of the population feels that it's being handed a cucumber, when it deserves a grape. People from the Supreme Court of Ukraine came to visit. And, um, and so I'm in this meeting with them, and they said, well, you know, what happens when you rule against the government? And it's nothing. You know, if the government doesn't like the ruling, they appeal. You know, but nothing happens to me, you know. And they, they thought I was being disrespectful, that I wasn't being truthful with them. He was being truthful. But there's more than one way to attack the independence of judges. You don't need to completely eliminate it. All you need to do is to generate sufficient mistrust of their judgments. And then it isn't long before every judge is just a little bit frightened to do her job. The Ninth Circuit, we're going to have to look at that. Because every case, no matter where it is, they file it in what's called the Ninth Circuit. This was an Obama judge. And I'll tell you what, it's not going to happen like this anymore. She tests the rock now against the wall. She needs to give it to us. And she gets cucumber again. (laughs) There's one big practical difference between experimental monkeys and human beings. The monkeys at least pretend to respect their referees, the people who work with them. And the scientists really do want the best for the monkeys. The researchers piss them off by giving one a cucumber and another a grape. But they don't allow them to stay pissed off. And how long do the feelings linger? Oh, that I don't know. We, we usually, by the end of the experiment, because these monkeys live in a group, they don't live in these uh, test chambers, uh, by the end of the experiment, we give them a lot of food, and they're all very happy, and then they are sent back to their group. So we never know how long, how long they're mad, because we, uh, we don't want them to, uh, to be frustrated by the experiment. People aren't given that chance. 
Our experiment is called life, and it's frustrating. When we see unfairness, we aren't sent to some decompression chamber to calm down before rejoining our fellow human beings. We look around for something or someone to attack, and at some point, we see the judge. I'm Michael Lewis. Thanks for listening to Against the Rules. Against the Rules is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. The show is produced by Audrey Dilling and Catherine Girardeau, with research assistance from Zoe Oliver-Gray and Beth Johnson. Our editor is Julia Barton. Mia Lobel is our executive producer. Our theme was composed by Nick Bertel, with additional scoring by Seth Samuel. Mastering by Jason Gambrell. Our show was recorded by Topher Ruth at Northgate Studios in Berkeley. Special thanks to our founders, Jacob Weisberg and Malcolm Gladwell. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10x points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER.